Good morning. So I don't like having my life disrupted. I don't like having my peace, my inner peace disturbed. Do you? I don't like having uh, people make waves. I don't like having the apple cart upset. I don't like it when people throw a wrench in the works, or as the Brits say, a spanner in the works. I like that better. Now, don't get me wrong. When my life gets disrupted, as is the case in this pandemic, there is certain, a certain surge of energy and creativity that I enjoy. Trying to figure out a new way to do things, a new way to minister, there is some energy and excitement about that, at least at first. Nonetheless, through it all, another way to say it, my world has been rocked. 2020 has rocked my world, upset my apple cart, and thrown a spanner into the wrench. And, and, I mean, a spanner into the works. And I imagine that most everybody here can identify with that. And it's not over yet, because I heard yesterday that in 2020, hurricane season has arrived early. Of course it has. Of course it has. This idea of a disrupted Life is found in the pages of the book of Acts, too, several times. But what I'm thinking of is back in Acts chapter 17, some bad characters rally a mob and they grab Paul and his companions and they, they take them to the city officials where they complained. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, the way that it's actually more literally translated when it says that these men have caused trouble over the world is these men have turned the world upside down. That's literally how, it's, how it reads. These men have turned the world upside down. And we're going to let that be our good news statement. Now, I know it doesn't sound like good news, at least initially, but we're going to let that be our good news statement. The mission of Jesus turns the world upside down. The mission of Jesus turns the world upside down. It's good news because when the world is, is already upside down, upside down means right side up. The mission of Jesus turns the world upside down. Over in our passage for this morning, verse 23 of chapter 19, Luke Oaken opens it up with a provocative sentence. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. There arose a great disturbance about the way. And there again, Luke is using, Luke the author is using the label the way to talk about this early movement of Christians. The way likely refers to a couple things. It refers to the way of the way to go from to, to get to the Father through Jesus. It also refers to the way of discipleship, the way of life, a kingdom way of life that runs up against the majority culture in the city of Ephesus. And then Luke tells us what this disturbance was all about in verse 24. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in the related trades. He said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Luke, again, as I said, refers to them as the way, the way to Jesus and the way of Jesus' followers in the world. It runs up against the culture in Ephesus. What happens in Ephesus could be a case study in what happens when the way gets in the way. 
What happens in Ephesus is a picture of what happens when the way gets in the way. The way gets in the way economically because someone is losing money as people turn away from their false gods. The kingdom of God has begun to take shape in the city of Ephesus. This this disturbance, this riot, is evidence that the initial mission of the church in Ephesus was a rousing success. Sometimes you can tell how successful something's been by the opposition, the nature of the opposition against it. People are changed. They are choosing no longer to worship idols, and that upsets the Ephesian apple cart. Their way of life is being challenged. Their religious beliefs are being upended, and their economy is on a downward trend. The way gets in the way, and people get upset. And why not? Jesus is turning their world upside down. This disturbance Luke is talking about is very much an external disturbance. People from outside the movement of early Christians are attacking people within from the outside, but it doesn't take too much imagination for us to picture that there was an internal disturbance going on too in the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people in the church. Back in Acts 17, the rioters accused Paul of of proclaiming that there was another king besides Caesar. Here in Acts 19, Paul is accused of saying there is another God besides Artemis. Changing kings and changing gods can be costly. Changing kings and changing gods can be costly. It can be painful. It can be disorienting. It can be dangerous depending on where you live and how you live. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey puts it this way. He says, quote, I used to believe that Christianity solved problems and made life easier. Increasingly, I believe that it should, increasingly, I believe my faith complicates life in ways it should be complicated. As a Christian, I cannot not care about the environment, about homelessness and poverty, about racism and religious persecution, about injustice and violence. God does not give me that option. Now, we could certainly add to Philip Yancey's list of things in our lives that Jesus has complicated. I'm sure of that. On one level, the easiest thing in the world to do is to go through life without any moral compass. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, to and with whomever you want. There are no restraints. But the minute you inject Jesus into the equation, it gets complicated. It gets complicated, as it should. But saying that Jesus complicates things, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? That doesn't, that sounds like a burden. That sounds like work. That sounds like bad PR to go around telling people, come and follow Jesus, he'll complicate your life. Surely we want to make following Jesus as easy and as accessible as we possibly can, right? And I get that. And I think Jesus gets that too. Otherwise, why would he talk Why would he talk about the need for us to count the cost of discipleship? Why would he talk about carrying our crosses and denying ourselves and laying down our lives? Why would he talk about the necessity of taking his yoke and placing it on our shoulders? But each of these pictures that Jesus gives us of the challenges of discipleship come with promises. The challenge of counting the cost of discipleship. The cost is worth it when compared to new and abundant and eternal life that we get to experience now and in the hereafter. Carrying your cross eventually leads to resurrection and new life. And taking Jesus' yoke and placing it on our shoulders comes with the, with the promise that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
Jesus says to himself in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does Jesus turn our worlds upside down? Does Jesus complicate our lives? Yes, he does. But he also is with us in that chaos, in that turmoil, in that disruption of our lives, disturbance of our peace. And he gives us peace. He gives us rest to sustain us for the journey. More than that, he empowers us. He gives us strength. He enables us to follow him faithfully wherever he leads. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 tells us that these trials, these troubles we're facing right now are light and momentary, his words, light and momentary compared to the eternal glory which far outweighs them all. And getting back to the more obvious disturbance in the passage, that external disturbance, what what is all of this conflict about? Ephesus is a capital city in the province of Asia Minor. It was large. It was uh, very influential. It was also the home to one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. This thing is acting up again. Never wearing it again. Okay. The Temple of Artemis, which the columns for the temple were 40 feet high. The temple was 377 feet long and 151 feet wide. Temple of Artemis. Artemis was a very influential and important goddess. She was the virgin goddess. She was the huntress goddess. She was the mother goddess. She was the champion of fertility. She was worshipped throughout Asia Minor and in the world, the passage tells us. According to the passage as well, we find out that the Ephesians feel some responsibility. They see themselves as the guardians of her temple. And of course, there were people in Ephesus who made their living in industries connected to the worship of Artemis, just like there are people in our country who make their living connected to the worship of Jesus Christ. Me, for example. Or people who run bookstores or publish books. Same kind of thing. People from all over the world visited the temple and they would purchase small shrines, little statues, silver statues of Artemis the Great, and take them home with them. In addition, the temple was not just a place of worship. It was also the largest bank in all of Asia at the time. People from all over left large sums of money on deposit in that bank. So if we were to kind of, by comparison, if we took the city of Ephesus and said it's like New York City, then the Temple of Artemis is like the New York Stock Exchange. This is the kind of power that we're dealing with here. When you you come against Artemis, when you come against her temple, when you come against the income that her business brings in, it's a serious offense in the eyes of the Ephesians. It was a threat to their economy. It was a threat to their way of life. It was a threat to their religion. The good news of Jesus has caused a great disturbance. It rocked their world. It turned their world upside down. And it all started with the money. It all started with the money. The first words out of Demetrius' mouth were, you know, you know we receive a good income from this business. Oh yes, and then there's the religious part. But he starts there. Reminds me of a, a line from one of Bruce Willis's Die Hard movies. I've seen them all. I don't know which one it was. 
The bad guys always appear to be to have a cause, but in the end, it's always about the money. And Bruce Willis says, it's always been about the money. You could say that here. It's about the economy, stupid. But it's about more than that. It's about all the spheres, the important spheres of both ancient and I would say modern, the modern world as well. Politics, religion, economics. All rolled into one. Demetrius, the silversmith, who made shrines for Artemis. Demetrius calls all of his fellow tradesmen together and gets them riled up. He gets them angry. He traffics. He does what so many of the politicians and pundits do today. He traffics in the politics of scarcity. We're not going to have enough. And the politics of fear. It's all going to fall apart. He traffics in the politics of scarcity and fear. They need to put a stop to this disturbance now. Otherwise, everything's going to fall apart. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Just to put things in perspective, the theater in, in uh, Ephesus held like 25,000 people. We don't know if uh, the crowd was smaller than that, bigger than that, or about that size. We don't know, but we do get a sense of, the, of, of violence and the intent to harm sort of looming on the horizon of this story. The odds are decidedly not in the favor of Paul and his friends. The writers grab a couple of Paul's companions. They drag them along, likely to harm them. And Paul is apparently not with them when this happens, so he seeks to intervene. He wants to go into the theater and to speak to the people in their defense and knowing Paul also because it's a great opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the one true God. But that doesn't happen. The disciples and some high-ranking friends of Paul restrained Paul from doing so. So, in fact, the guy who in about every other place that he appears in the book of Acts, who does most of the talking, is surprisingly silent here. He doesn't speak a word in this episode. Now, he did a lot of talking beforehand, don't misunderstand me, but in this episode, he doesn't speak. And yet, God is still at work. God is always at work. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. This is my favorite part. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Luke tells us that amid all of the chaos and the confusion, the Jewish leaders push someone named Alexander to the front to make a defense. We don't know for sure who Alexander is or was, but it's likely he was uh, one of the Jewish leaders who, who could speak well, and he was going up there to make a defense to say, we're not those guys. We have nothing to do with those Christians. We're different. I have two dogs, Scully and Mulder, and whenever I let Scully and Mulder out, Scully always barks at the neighbors whenever she sees them. Always. And we always have to go out and say, Scully, shut up or come in. And she usually does. But before that happens, they'll go out, the dogs will go out, 
Scully will see a neighbor start barking. And before we can get to the door, Mulder, who's the puppy of the two, Mulder is seen at the glass sliding door looking in going, it's not me, it's her. I didn't do it. And I think this is part of what the Jewish leaders want. They want Alexander to get up and say, it's not us, it's them. We have nothing to do with those Christians. This Paul has gone rogue. And they want to put as much distance between him and the followers of Jesus and themselves. But there is a great animosity between Romans and Jews, Gentiles and Jews in general. So much so when Alexander quiets the crowd and begins to speak, probably because they recognize his accent and realize he's Jewish, they shout him down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours. I want you to picture the chaos, the anger, the noise. See, what we're dealing here is, is, is an idol in the most concrete historical sense. Whenever we never actually hear Paul say the words he's accused of saying here in the passage, it's clear, however, that following Jesus is to acknowledge that there are no other gods at all. They are made by human hands. They have no power, no worth, no value that we should worship them. And this disturbs the peace. But as Jordan made clear in last week's passage, idols never really go away. They just adapt. They just change forms. Like the demons that Jesus sends in the Gospels, that Jesus sends out of the man possessed by the legion of demons, he sends them out and into the herd of swine where they continue in a new form to do the damage they'd always intended to do. Idols never really disappear, they just change forms. Whenever you and I cling to ways of life or to economic, political, or cultural philosophies that run contrary to the kingdom of way in the world, we are worshiping false idols. And Jesus wants to turn that world, turn our world, upside down. Which, of course, means right side up. Jesus disturbs our peace as surely as he disturbed the peace of the people in the city of Ephesus, or again, as Philip Yancey uh, put it, Jesus and faith in Jesus complicates our lives. It complicates our lives. Jesus does so lovingly, Jesus does so tenderly, but as long as you and I are not yet perfected in Christ's kingdom way, Jesus will continue to disturb our peace. Thank God. As long as we are not yet perfected in the image of Christ within us, Jesus will continue to complicate our lives. He will continue to turn our worlds upside down for His glory, for our neighbor's good, and for our own abundant lives in Jesus Christ. Thank God that He doesn't leave us alone. And I want to be careful in how I say what I'm about to say. How you hear it matters to me. I can't control that, but I want to be careful. What I'm about to say is not intended to be judgmental. It's not intended to be condescending. It's not intended to be manipulative. And what I say to you, I say as much to me. And that is this. As long as you and I are still on the road to new creation and to our final and full redemption in Christ Jesus... As long as we have not yet arrived, spiritually speaking, and none of us have. If Jesus doesn't disturb our peace or disrupt our lives every once in a while, 
then I recommend we take a hard, long, prayerful look at our lives because there are bound to be one or two idols at work. As long as you and I are still on this journey toward new creation and our final redemption, as long as we have not yet arrived, spiritually speaking, if Jesus does not disrupt our lives or disturb our peace every once in a while, I encourage you, I exhort you, to take a hard, long, prayerful look at your life to see if there might not be one or two idols you are worshiping. Jesus may complicate our lives and disturb our peace through the difficult words of a brother or sister in Christ who points something out to us and says, this is, I see an inconsistency in you. Jesus may upset our, our apple cart by directing us to a passage of Scripture that perhaps we've read dozens, hundreds of times, but suddenly the Spirit uses it. It's like we're reading it for the first time, and it just kind of just takes a jab, and we realize something about ourselves that needs to change. Jesus may throw a spanner in the works through a good Christian book, and as we're reading it, suddenly we discover a new way to reimagine and re-engage our lives in a more kingdom-shaped way. Or, heaven forbid, Jesus may turn our worlds upside down through the words of a sermon that ruffles our feathers. And if we listen, and if we are pliable, good. God can work with that. If we do not, if we resist the corrective, disruptive word of Jesus, we may discover that there are, in fact, idols at work in our lives. And the only thing to do with idols, biblically speaking, is to get rid of them, to stop worshiping them. The late Andrew Greeley, Catholic priest and uh, novelist, once said, quote, If one wishes to eliminate uncertainty, tension, confusion, and disorder from one's life, there is no point in getting mixed up with either Yahweh, the God of Israel, or with Jesus of Nazareth. If you want to eliminate uncertainty, tension, confusion, and disorder from your life, no point in getting mixed up with Jesus. Take John Woolman, for example. He was a, success, a successful Quaker merchant with a very comfortable life, but Jesus complicated his life. Jesus introduced a little bit of tension and uncertainty and disorder into his life and turned his world upside down. Jesus convicted John Woolman of the evil of slavery in the mid-1700s, and Woolman sold his prosperous business and used the proceeds to buy freedom for enslaved people. But it didn't stop there. He stopped wearing suits with any dye in them because the dye was produced by the institution of slavery. He stopped eating sugar, molasses, and he stopped drinking rum. Why? Because all of those things were produced using slave labor, he was known as the quiet revolutionary, a man whose life, complicated by Jesus, a man whose life eventually helped lead to a radical shift among American Quakers. By 1787, no American Quakers any longer owned people or enslaved people. You know, posting your opinion on Facebook can get you in trouble, make people angry. I guess that's a little bit of a disruption. Try living your life according to the values you say you believe. Try living your life as a person who seeks to follow Jesus in every way. That will disrupt your life. That will turn the world upside down. It will get in your way. 
Now, why do we need to be reminded of these, this, this fact that the mission of Jesus turns the world upside down? Because we're too comfortable. And we need to be reminded of these things because when it happens, we won't be surprised. If you engage in the mission of Jesus, you're going to disrupt the world. You're going to be disrupted yourself. Your own peace is going to be disturbed. We need to be reminded of these things so that we will know that when we take what is already upside down and we turn it upside down again, it becomes right side up. And that is not going to make it any less chaotic or difficult or painful. But it is going to mean that in some significant way, the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in the heavens. I can imagine this riot in Ephesus was rather frightening for the fledgling church there. I can imagine fear and doubt creeping into the hearts and minds and lives of the people there. I I can imagine there was a temptation on behalf of these early followers of Jesus to to pull back, to, to shut up, to cower behind closed doors. Let's lay low for a little while. Let's stop making waves for a little while. Let's wait and see if this whole thing will just blow over. And I I get that. And that may be exactly what they needed to do for a season. In fact, historically speaking, the cult of Artemis remained powerful and dominant in the city of Ephesus for another 200 years. Which means that even with the great initial success of the mission, the people of God were still very much in the minority in the city of Ephesus. And their lives were still very disruptive to the culture, upside down, according to the culture, and it stayed that way for a very long time. That's what it means to carry your cross and deny yourself. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And this, too, is the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in the heavens. And I can imagine they needed to be reminded, as you and I still do from time to time, that that we dwell in Christ Jesus, and that Christ dwells in and delights in us that we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And the kingdom is not in trouble. And neither are we. First John 4.4 4 tells us that the one who lives in us, the one who dwells in and delights in us, is greater than the one who lives in the world. Our peace has been disturbed by so many things this year. We have been hit with a perfect storm, the trifecta the pandemic, civil unrest over racism and racism itself. And to top it all off, it's a presidential election year. So in response to this good news that Jesus does in fact turn our world upside down and that when you take whatever is upside down and you turn it upside down again, you're actually turning it right side up, I would invite you to do two things in response to this. This week, I challenge you to do them for the rest of 2020 because we're going to need it. You're going to need it. Two things. First, spend time each day, and this is in the Bible app live event, spend time each day at least once a day, I hope you do it more than that, prayerfully declaring the truth of those power narratives that we taught you a few months ago and that I just alluded to. Before you begin each day, hopefully more often than that, but at least before you begin each day, declare these truths over yourselves. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not in trouble, and neither am I. Let's do this all together right now. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. 
I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. Do that. Declare those things over your life and over your household. Second, and very simply, and hopefully we're all already doing this to some extent, commit to praying for our nation, for our community, and for our world in these crises that I've just mentioned. Pray for wisdom. Pray for civility. Pray for peace. Pray for nonviolence. Pray for restitution. Pray for justice. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for healing. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the leaders you agree with. Pray for the leaders you disagree with. Those you might even consider your enemies. If you have trouble praying for your enemies, so do I. That's why it's in the Bible. To remind us that we still have to do it. Two things. Prayerfully declare these truths over your life and over your household. And pray for our community, our nation, and our world. It's good to do these things. It's good to do these things. Because through them, you and I are reminded of who we are and who God is. It's good to do these things because in and through them, we are being transformed. We are on that road toward Christiformity when we engage in practices like this. And it's good to do these, these, these things because in and through them, God, through us, is transforming the world. And you and I need to be transformed. And our world needs to be transformed. Our world needs to be turned upside down. Would you pray with me as we close? God in heaven, I give you thanks this day for the radical, world-changing, universe-changing event that you have engaged in by sending your son Jesus into the world to be born among us as one of us, to live among us, to teach us, to demonstrate the kingdom way, to die for our sins and to rise again. I celebrate that you have not left, left us alone as orphans, but that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to empower us. And I pray for us here, Lord God. I pray for this local congregation and I pray for the larger church in this city, in this country, in your world, Lord God, that we would be praying for these things that we would learn the truth of these things and be praying for these things, that we would desire, as Paul and his companions did, to see the world turned upside down. Let us never forget, oh God, that it's possible that what you can and will do in and through your people is amazing and perhaps unfathomable. And I pray, Lord God, that whatever you do in us and through us, that through it all you would receive honor and glory and praise that are due your name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.